Good morning, church family, and welcome to yet another online service. We are so delighted that you could join us once again from the comfort of your own home. Psalms 116, verse 7, reads as follows. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. David commanded his soul to return to rest. And if this morning you're finding yourself feeling frustrated, feeling overwhelmed, feeling anguished, why don't you be like David and command your soul to be addressed? Because you know what? God has been good to you and he will continue to be good to you. So rise and rebuild. Now, before we go into the rest of the service, let us just pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning. Father, we would like to surrender every emotion that we may be feeling into the palm of your hands. Holy Spirit, remind us of how good God has been to us and that he continues to be good day in, day out. We pray that we may see light in every circumstance that we may find ourselves in. Father, we pray for wisdom, for knowledge and discernment as we go into today's teaching. We pray for all of this in the mighty living name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let's have a look at what's happening in the life of the church. On Sunday, the 5th of September, we are going to have our annual general meeting at four o'clock in the afternoon. Please save the date. More information will be shared in the coming weeks. And secondly, ladies conference at Cornerstone Church Pretoria on the 21st of August. Registration is 180 per person. If you're interested in going, please speak to Antin Kensani Matebula. Cornerstone's annual ladies conference is right around the corner and you can't afford to miss it. It will be a physical conference that will also be live streamed and it will be taking place on Saturday the 21st of August 2021 from 10am to 12pm. We will be having Dr. Eva Siobi as our guest speaker. Our theme is Anchored, which is based on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Tickets are still being sold at 150 Rand per person, and you are welcome to purchase your ticket by using the banking details on the screen. If you would like to book a business table, you can do so at 100 Rand. We look forward to seeing you there. Ah, good day, church. Um, good day, family. I have a very exciting announce announcement to, to share with you today. As a church, we have decided to start another prayer group. Um, this is a prayer group for people who are willing and able to wake up at dawn and join us in prayer. Our prayer meetings will be every Tuesday morning at 5 in the morning. Tuesday mornings at 5 in the morning. and. Every week there will be somebody leading us in prayer. It is actually a very interesting and exciting thing because it is an interactive prayer meeting. There will be somebody leading. You will be in the comfort of your house or the comfort of your bed or maybe at times even traveling because the curfew now ends at four, isn't it? So, you know, you would be on the road in the house or wherever you are. Then you'll be able to be part of the prayer meeting please join us. We are sending out links, or if you have not yet received the, the link to join this prayer, this dawn prayer group for People's Church, please take the time, ask those, ask some members of the church and find out if they do not have that advert already or rather the link already so that you can join us as we get to pray together every Tuesday morning. And uh, you do know, family, that he is a prayer answering God. And it is not because of our prayers that our lives change, but it is because God sees our prayers and our faith is not in our prayers, but our, pray our faith is in the God who has instructed us to pray. So I hope you'll be joining us as we pray together every Tuesday at five in the morning. 
join the people's prayer group and the Lord bless you as you join us and interact with us every Tuesday morning. Be blessed. Kindly note that our Sunday in-person gatherings are back, so make sure to book online. The registration link will be made available during the course of the week. And today we are continuing with part five of our series, Rise and Rebuild. And today we'll be concluding the book of Ezra, meaning from next Sunday we are starting the book of Nehemiah. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we'd like to get to know you. So please fill in our welcome card that you will find in the description box below. And now I'm going to hand over to Mr. Maguarela, who's going to encourage us with a word of offering. And immediately after that, he'll be followed by Pastor Mondli with today's teaching. We hope that the service is a blessing to you. Enjoy. Greetings, People's Church. It's a privilege to be sharing this offered message with you this wonderful morning. I hope you're still staying blessed during these winter times. If you have been following, and I hope you've been following our current series, Rise and Rebuild, and I'm reminded of when Pastor Mondley during week two spoke of effecting positive change. And this account comes from the book of Ezra chapter 3. And in verse 1 it says, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josedak, and his brethren the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offering on it as it was written in the law of Moses the man of God though the fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord both in the morning and evening burnt offering they also kept the feast of tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily and offered the daily burnt offering in the number required by the ordinance for each day afterwards they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for all of the appointed feasts of the lord of the lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. For the first day of the seventh month, they had began to offer burnt offering to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and to the carpenter and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the, to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. What really fascinates me about this passage of scripture is that at least nine times you see it referring to they, them, or those. And it shows that it's even though God can appoint one person or give one person a word or if one person stands up and takes initiative, it comes down to the people to execute. One person cannot do it alone and even though that person may be courageous to take that bold step, there has to be a number of people who come together and buy into that vision. And the Bible said, does not give us the detail of exactly who did what. It just tells us that they set the altar, they offered burnt offering, they kept the feast, they offered free will offering, they gave money. This is where the impact is when we come together, when we want to effect positive change. It is not just one person. 
it is not just the pastor who has to do it. We all have to rally around him as a community in order for that positive change to be effected. Do not be tempted to ever think, as we have always stressed throughout the year, that what I'm doing is too small. It cannot impact. It is not just what, what one person is doing. It, it is the sum total of what we do together in this community. Your offering, whatever you offer in time or money or tithes offering, whatever it is, all of that, when we bring it together, is what effects positive change. We really thank you for continually making a contribution to this house and God continually bless you as you give. Thank you. Good morning. It is the first Sunday of August and every first Sunday of every month we always take a moment to really just take communion and remember what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And today I just want to encourage us with this one verse taken from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It says, Paul, the apostle, he says, Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. This is a very powerful scripture that really captures what took place on the cross and the result of that. So I'm just going to take a moment to look at what happened and then also look at why it happened. Firstly, what happened? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the finished work of the cross of Calvary, the Bible tells us that we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood or through his blood. And the concept of redemption is very important uh, in the Bible. It's a very important concept to understand. And what it captures is really the act of setting something or someone free by paying a ransom. And so the idea here is that Jesus Christ, when he was being sacrificed on the cross, he was the ransom that was paid for our freedom. He was the prize for our liberty. And the question is, freedom from what? And there are three things that God sets us free from as children of God. First of all, it is the power of sin. Secondly, it is the penalty of sin. And thirdly, it is the presence of sin. Let's just look at them quickly. Firstly, the power of sin. When you and I become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that, that God by the Holy Spirit makes us into a new creation. And he also puts the Holy Spirit within, the, within us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to be able to say no to sin, to be able to choose to live the life that God wants us to live, thereby setting us free from the power and the hold of sin in our lives. Secondly, that uh, the Bible tells us here as well that the result of what Jesus did on the cross was the total forgiveness of our sins. And that sets us free from the penalty or the punishment for sin because God has forgiven our sins completely and there, there is no more penalty to be paid. And thirdly, when Jesus comes again, the Bible assures us that he will deal finally with uh, the issue of sin, that, that sin will be defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and thereby setting us free from the very presence of sin. Those are the three things that he sets us free from. Now, let's look at why it happened. Paul says this, and I like the phrase that he uses in this Passion Translation. He says, it was all because of the cascading riches of his grace. So it wasn't because you and I earned it. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because of anything that we did in our, on our own. And it certainly wasn't because we are better than other people. But it is all because of the cascading riches of God's grace. And so as we come around the table, as we take communion, it is a moment and an opportunity for us to remember. We first of all remember, you know, our former state before Christ uh, died for us, our former state of bondage to sin. We also remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. We remember what he did for us on the cross when he laid down his life so that we may live, so that 
we may be set free. And then thirdly, and finally, it is also a moment and an opportunity for us to remember that it wasn't because of us. It wasn't because of anything that we did, but it is all because our God is rich in grace. It is all because our God is gracious and merciful. So let us take the moment to remind ourselves of these things and to bless and to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord God, for paying the ransom, the price that was set for us for our liberty, for our freedom. We thank you, Lord God, that because of what Jesus did on the cross, our sins are totally forgiven when we have placed our faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his finished work, that our sins are totally forgiven. We pray, Father, that you remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, you remind us of where we come from, and you remind us that it is not because of us, so that we may not boast. Remind us that it, is, it was because you are a God who is rich in grace and mercy. We lift your name up, we praise you, now and forevermore. Amen. Good morning and welcome to part five of our series, Rise and Rebuild, where we are basically looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and learning some key lessons that are going to help us in our lives to be able to rise and rebuild and put the pieces of our lives back together. And today, we are actually coming to an end of the first part, which is the book of Ezra. And basically, before we do that, let's just do a quick recap of what we covered last week. So last week, we were able to see how the children of Israel that were sent back to rebuild the temple, how they were able to deal with opposition and discouragement. And we also were able to see how God worked behind the scenes and miraculously to be able to help them to arise and to continue rebuilding the temple until they had finished. And chapter 6 ends with them having finished finally the temple. And it ends with a celebration as they observe the feast of Passover. And basically they are reminding themselves of the goodness of God and what God has done for them in the past as he delivered the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt a couple of generations prior. And today we tackle the last section or the last portion of the book of Ezra from chapter 7 to chapter 10. And this basically takes place about a year after the temple had been rebuilt, about a year after that celebration and that feast of Passover. And basically chapter 7 opens with another decree that God has worked supernaturally behind the scenes to, to actually influence another king to be able to write a decree that allows and permits any person who is an Israelite or who is a Jew who wants to go back home to begin to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their nation to be able to do so. But more than that, he even uh, gives Ezra an, extra, an instruction to go back and to actually check whether the people that had already been sent back, whether they are continuing to observe God's law or not, and actually to bring some correction in that and also bring some teaching into the people regarding God's law. So this is the, the, the supernatural thing that happens where God influences this king to write this decree that allows anyone who wants to go back to actually go back. And this is part of the second group of exiles. Because remember, from when we started, that the, the account of Ezra Nehemiah is actually centered or, or organized around three movements or three groups of, Ezra, of uh, Israelites uh, kept captives that were allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives. And the first group had been uh, sent by King Cyrus. And King Cyrus wrote a decree and allowed them to go back to rebuild the temple. And that group was made up of about 50,000 people. So it was a large group of people that were sent back to go back to rebuild. And that group was led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And that was the largest and the first group. The second group is what we're looking at today. And that group is led by Ezra, who was a priest and a scribe. And this group is made up of about 1,700, 1,800 people, or men specifically, excluding women and children. But this is definitely much smaller than the, than the first group. And the task of this group is that they are supposed to go back 
and to actually rebuild the society, rebuild the community. In fact, that's the title of my message for today, Rebuilding the Community. And so basically, they, because Ezra was a priest or was a scribe, was an expert in the law, he was sent by God. Uh, supernaturally or providentially to go back and to begin to rebuild the people of God around God's word, around God's law. And the last group is what we're going to look at next week. That's the group that was uh, led by Nehemiah to go back and to begin to rebuild the broken down walls of the city because the walls were broken down and the, and the gates were burned with fire. And so he is sent and he leads the last and final group to go back and to begin to rebuild those broken down walls. And as I mentioned that today we are looking at the, the last part uh, of Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra from chapter 7 to, to chapter 10. And, and maybe the last thing that we can mention is the king. So in chapter 7, that decree is actually uh, written or, or uh, released by King Artaxerxes. And it's very interesting because once you just begin to do a study, you will begin to realize that Artaxerxes is actually not a name, but it is a title. And the title means great king. So it's a generic title that any king around that time could have used. It means great king. And what's more interesting is that even Cyrus and Darius and even Ahasuerus, the other kings that we get to know about around this time frame, also those are not names. Those are titles that those kings used. And what's worse is that some kings even used more than one title at a time. And so what that does is that it makes it a little bit tricky to actually get to the bottom of which king the Bible is talking about specifically when you are trying to understand or interpret the scripture. So we have to then rely on context and what's happening around that time and also just uh, the chronology of events. And so in the beginning of chapter 7, as I've mentioned, there's a decree that is issued by King Artaxerxes that allows an, a second group of captives to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the nation, to rebuild the community. And what we, then the question that becomes, which King Artaxerxes is this? Because if you have been following, we have already come across a King Artaxerxes way back in chapter 4, and that is the king who wrote a decree that basically stopped the work of the rebuilding of the temple. So the, the opposition uh, to the Israelites or to the Jews had sent a letter to King Artaxerxes, and he responded back by issuing a decree that says that the, the, the work must stop. They must not continue building the, the temple. And so now in chapter 7, we are introduced to a king who writes a decree that is completely opposite to that. So uh, common sense says this probably was not the same person. This was not the same king. And so scholars are persuaded to believe, you know, that this was actually King Darius. So you will also know from chapter 6 that King Darius came after King Artaxerxes, and he wrote another decree overruling the one of Artaxerxes, saying the work can continue. The work of the rebuilding of the temple must continue. And in fact, he even gave supplies to the Israelites to build the temple. He gave them as much support as they needed from the, from the king's treasury itself to support the work of the rebuilding of the temple. So scholars believe this is actually that same King, uh, king Artaxerxes, who is actually King Darius. Because on the second year of his reign, he had written that decree. And on the sixth year of, of his reign, then the temple had been completely uh, uh, rebuilt. You know, the building of the temple was completed. And this is now the following year, which is the seventh year of his reign. And then lastly, let's just cover a little bit of Ezra, the person, and then we're going to go into today's text. So Ezra, the name Ezra basically means help. So that's what it means. Ezra means help. And we are told from the Bible that Ezra was a priest. And, and even in chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 7, we are given a, a lineage or a genealogy uh, for him to say that he actually traces his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the original chief priest. And so what this basically proves is that Ezra is a legitimate priest in Israel according to the line of Aaron, the chief priest. And then we are also told that he was a man who was skilled 
in the law of Moses. He was a man who was an expert in the commandments and even the statutes of God. So these are his credentials, if you like. And then lastly, the the last thing that we are told about him is that God's hand was upon him. In fact, that phrase, God's hand was upon me, God's hand was upon us, is actually repeated six times in just chapter 7 and chapter 8. What that tells us is that Ezra was a deeply spiritual man, was a person who trusted and relied upon God. And so today we're just going to focus on chapter 9 and chapter 10. And so we'll begin our reading from chapter 9, verse 1. But before we do that, let's just take a moment to prepare our hearts and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another opportunity, Father God, to be able to come under the teaching of your word. We pray, Father, that you open our hearts, that you open our minds, open our ears to listen, to hear, to understand what you are teaching us today. But more than that, we pray, Father, that you may help us to be able to apply what we are learning in our lives so that our lives may reflect that life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for all this uh, in the mighty name of Jesus now and forevermore. And everyone said, Amen. So Ezra chapter 9 from verse 1, this is what it says. It says, after these things had been done. So this basically refers to everything that I've just mentioned to you, all the way from chapter 7 to chapter 9, that decree that had been written, the, the trip or the journey that had been taken to go all the way back to Jerusalem and Also, they were given uh, some supplies, supplies for the temple, uh, some silver and gold for the work of the temple. They had been able to deliver that to the priests in the temple in Jerusalem. And they also had some instructions that they had to deliver to governors and also counselors, people that were officials in the city or around the the area at that time. All of that had been done. They had been back for a couple of days now. So this takes place shortly after that. So it says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me. So this is Ezra. They approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Peritites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. So when you and I hear something like that or we read that, we may ask ourselves a question, so what? You know, what's the big deal about all of that? What's so easy for us to miss is the fact that the Israelites derived their identity from their relationship with God. If you think about it, their relationship with God was the only thing that separated them that set them apart from all the other nations that they were living around at that time. But it was way more than just about, you know, identity. It was also about safety and protection. Their relationship with God assured them and provided for them safety and protection. And right and back in those days, that was something that was, that was a big deal because those were moments, you know, when war could have broke, down, broke out at any moment, at any time. A, a nation could rise up against another nation, declare war against them, and really danger was always imminent. And Israel, being a very small nation at the time, you know, they needed God's supernatural protection. And the contract that defined the terms and conditions of the relationship between God and his people was something that was called the law or the covenant. So that was the the terms and conditions. That was the contract that defined that relationship. And part of the covenant were specific lists of things that the Israelites were permitted to do and things that they were not permitted to do. And one of those things was that they were not permitted to intermarry with the other nations that were around them. They were not allowed. And this is the rule that they had now just broken. And when Ezra had this report, he was absolutely devastated. He was broken and shattered to the core. And for you and I to begin to even uh, comprehend or get a sense of the kind of devastation 
I was thinking, you know, that if you are a woman, that you can think about that ideal and seriously expensive uh, cookware set of nonstick pots that you have been eyeing and wanting to get your hands on for some time now. Now imagine that you have been saving up for them for a while, maybe a couple of years, and finally you've been able to purchase those nonstick pots that you have been eyeing and wanting to get your hands on. Now imagine that shortly after that, that someone trying to be helpful thought the pots were dirty. That pots are not supposed to be black. They began to scrape them with uh, steel wool, you know, and began to wash them and completely destroyed that non-stick coating on the pots. Now imagine how would you feel about that right about that moment. And if you are a guy, maybe think about that ultimate collection of autobiographed soaker jerseys that you have been collecting over a couple of decades. You are excited about them. Finally, the, the collection is coming together. And one day, you actually come back from work to find that someone had decided to soak all of them in bleach, and they are all just absolutely destroyed. How would you feel about that? That just begins to give us a glimpse at what Ezra was feeling at that moment. This was the absolutely last thing that he expected to hear about his people. As he comes back to his native land after an exceedingly long time in exile. Imagine all the things that they had went through during the 70 years that God had handed them over to be sent to exile. Think about all the things that they had been through. And also how God had supernaturally and mercifully worked out uh, so that they may be able to be allowed to, to find a way to go back to their native land. And now, just to hear how quickly his people had been able to turn away from God and to commit the sin. We are told his response or his reaction in Ezra chapter 9 verse 3. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. He was absolutely broken, absolutely devastate, devastated. And, we, and we, are not, we are told that, you know, then after that he began to fast. Uh, on behalf of his people. And he prayed a heartfelt prayer of intercession from, from verse 5 of chapter 9 all the way to the end. Verse 15 of chapter 9, he prayed that prayer of intercession for his people. You see, Ezra was a priest, as we have already covered. And what, ba what that basically means is that part of his calling was that he needed to stand in the gap between God and his people. You know, he would appear before God and represent the people, but he would also appear before the people and represent God. That was the role that he played. And the truth of the matter is that you and I are also called to be intercessors. We are also called to stand in the gap in, uh, on behalf of the people that are around us, the fellow brothers and sisters and believers within the church, and also for kings and those in authority and everyone else uh, in the world as well. We are called to intercede. So what that basically tells me is that Ezra's response is also supposed to be our response. When we hear about a person who has fallen into sin or a person who's going through uh, difficult times of misfortune, that is supposed to be our response, that we are supposed to be absolutely broken and shattered when we hear the reports of that thing that has happened, that we are supposed to mourn and even fast on behalf of that person. We are supposed to appear before God and intercede and stand in the gap and pray for that person because we understand that what has happened to that person is not God's will for that person. We understand also what the consequences of sin are, what is going to happen in the life of that person as just a natural result of consequence of the sin that they had given themselves over to. But ultimately, we are supposed to intercede. We are supposed to pray because we understand that what happens in those moments is that it is the Lord's name that is defamed. It is the Lord's name, you know, that is ridiculed by the people of the world when they hear of things like that taking place 
in the church. So let me ask you this. You know, what is the first thing that you and I do when we hear of someone who's going through a, a difficult time or someone who has been uh, found out that he was living in sin or whatever the case is? What is the first thing that you and I do? Is it to call someone and begin to gossip about it? Or is it to go and appear before God and intercede on behalf of that person and plead, you know, the mercy of God upon the life of that person? Because I believe that God wants us to be those kinds of people, the people that are broken by the things, the difficult things, the bad things that happen to other people, to other fellow believers, to be people who intercede. And so basically when you look at the prayer, the intercessory prayer that he prays from verse 5 to verse 15, I see five things that he does, and those are things that I believe that we can do if we, when we also intercede for other people. The first thing is that he humbled himself. He did not look down upon the people that had committed the sin, but he humbled himself. Secondly, he identified himself with the people who had committed the sin. He did not separate himself from the people, but he identified himself with the people. He owned up to the guilt of the people, even historical guilt that had led them to go to captivity in the first place. Number four, he recalled God's grace, mercy, and righteousness in the past. How God had been so, so gracious and so good and so merciful upon them in the past. And number four, uh, number five, and lastly, he placed the people at the mercy of God. He placed, he, he, he submitted the people, he lifted up the people into the mercy of God. And these are the steps that you and I can also embark on as we intercede for people that maybe fall into sin, scandals that we hear about things that happen in people's lives. We are supposed to intercede. And we, are suppo we also need to remember that we are at war. As Christians, as believers, we always need to remember that we are in the battlefield, that there are forces of darkness, that there are forces of evil that are at war against the kingdom of God. And so when we side, you know, when we, when we also get excited or, or get pleasure from another person's misfortune, especially people that are believers, fellow believers, children of God, when we get pleasure from those kinds of things, we are actually siding with the enemy. It's almost as if we are, we are you know, scoring an own goal against our own team. When we do those things, we are not supposed to rejoice. We are not supposed to get any pleasure from a child of God who falls into sin or commits sin. And right now, you may be asking yourself, you know, why was the sin of intermarriage so bad? What was so bad about it? And there was actually a reason why God had prohibited the, the, the children of Israel from engaging in intermarriage with the other nations. There was a reason, and that's the thing. Because whenever God says no to you and I, there is always a reason behind it. And just because you and I don't know that reason, it doesn't mean that that reason does not exist. Because if you read Leviticus chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, you actually discover the reason, but for the, for the sake of time, today we're just going to focus on Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first four verses. And this is before the Israelites had even entered the, the, the promised land, the land of Canaan, before they had inherited the land. And God was preparing them for what was going to happen in the future. Deuteronomy chapter 7 from verse 1. It says, the Lord your God will bring you into the land. You are going to enter it and take it as your own. He will drive out many nations to make room for you. He'll drive out the Hittites, Gergashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Peritites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Those seven nations are, uh, are larger and stronger than you are. The Lord your God will hand them over to you. You will win the battle over them. You must completely destroy them. Don't make a peace treaty with them. Don't show them any mercy. Don't marry any of their people. Don't give your daughters to their sons, and don't take their daughters for your sons. And this is the reason. If if you do, those people will turn your children away from serving the Lord. Then your children will serve other gods. The Lord will be very angry with you. He will quickly destroy you. 
You see, at the core of the problem of this sin of intermarriage, of, of marrying a person who is not a believer, who does not believe what you believe, at the core of it is the fact that sooner or later they are going to influence you to walk away from God. This has always been the reason from the beginning. It was not to withhold fun from his people or any such thing, but God knew that whenever they would intermarry with people that do not believe what they believe that they would be influenced to begin to serve and to worship foreign gods and to turn away from God. And this was the big deal with intermarriage. And the fact of the matter is that it is something that had already happened in the past. They had seen the results of that. It had happened through, uh, the, through King Solomon as well. And they, and they had seen the, the devastating results of that, that the kingdom was torn in two. And all of a sudden now, the kingdom was divided. It was no longer united. And part of that was the sin that Solomon had committed. And he was led astray. He was led away from serving God because of the foreign women that he had married, women that did not serve the same God that he did. And so that's the reality of the matter, and that's the reason that God had, had not allowed them or permitted them to do it. But right now, you know, the fact of the matter and the truth of the matter is that you and I no longer live under the old covenant, or we no longer live under, you know, what is known as the Old Testament. We now live under the New Testament. And so what that basically means is that there are many things that are contained within the Old Covenant or even the Old Testament that no longer directly apply to us. Let me make an example. You know, under the Old Covenant, a, a, a man or a boy who was eight years old was expected to be circumcised as a sign that indeed he belonged to the people of God. That was the law. That was the rule. That was what happened. When you are a boy, you are eight years old, you needed and you were circumcised as a sign. This was to set you apart as part of the people of God. And so when it comes to the New Testament or the New Covenant, it's not that the con that concept no longer applies to us altogether, but it just applies to us in a way that's a little bit different. Take a look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, when you received Christ, this is Paul writing, when you received Christ, your circumcision was not done by human hands. Instead, your circumcision was done by Christ. He put away the person that you used to be at that time, sin's power ruled over you. So basically, uh, Paul saying, is saying that the physical act of circumcision was a sign pointing forward to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. So that now, when you believe, it is God by his spirit who performs the circumcision in our hearts. It's no longer a physical circumcision, but now it is a spiritual circumcision that is done by God himself. And he says, now God has, has removed the person that you used to be. So basically when you believe, the Bible says you become a new creation. You are born again. You become a new person with a new nature. And you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And that is what helps you to be able to live according to the way that God wants us to live. And that is actually what God has always wanted for his people from the beginning. It was way more than just the physical act of circumcision. It was for them to live in a particular way, in a way that pleases God. And so the, the, the fact is that uh, circumcision still applies to us, the concept of circumcision. It just applies differently. So what, what I'm basically saying that here is that we need to be careful, especially when we read the, new, the Old Covenant and the, new t the Old Testament and reading also the New Testament. We need to be careful about taking everything exactly as it is from the Old Covenant and trying to apply in our lives exactly as it is. Or if worse, to impose it upon other people. So we need to be very careful about that. But at the same time, do not tear out and begin to throw away the Old Testament from your Bible. But understand that as you read the, the, the Old Covenant, understand that you are now under the New Covenant. And you always need to ask yourself the question, how does this apply to me right now? What does this say? What does this mean to me right now whenever we read the old covenant. So then the question is, what does the new covenant have to say about intermarriage? And the fact of the matter is that it says quite a few 
a, a few things. And first and foremost, as we have already covered from last week, you know, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 14, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He says, don't do it. You know, that if you are dating right now a person who is not a believer, he says, cut them from your life. Don't do it. Don't, uh, don't actually yoke yourself together with them. And I understand that this can be hard. This is hard. It is emotional. You know, you may be even asking yourself, how dare you say that? You haven't even met him. You haven't even given them a chance. You know, you don't even know them. How dare you say that? And while I understand all of that, I would like to ask you a question of whether you understand what is really at stake here or not. Because Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says this, Don't let anyone fool you. Bad companions make a good person bad. You should come back to your senses and stop sinning. Some of you don't know anything about God. I say this to make you ashamed. But I believe, you know, that my faith is strong enough to be able to influence him or her so that they may become believers Together with me, Paul says, don't be fooled. That's not how it works. It's not that, you know, uh, it's not that good companions make a bad person good. But more often than not, it is bad companions that actually make even the, a good person bad. That is how it normally happens. So don't do it. And think about it, honestly. Even Solomon. If even Solomon, the person who is said to be one of the wisest people to have ever lived here on earth, if he could not get this right, how can you and I even begin to think that we can get this right? But I think deep down, you know this, and I know this, and the person that you are dating, they know this. And what's even worse is that they may even be secretly hoping that you get over this Christianity thing so that you can begin to enjoy life with them. Paul says, don't do it. It is not worth you walking away from God for. It is not worth it. So don't do it. And perhaps you are here and you, and you are in this situation, you know, and, and you have been hearing this, and you are seriously considering ending things. Maybe you've even prayed and asked God for a sign, that God give me a sign of what I must do, and, I, and this is the sign that God is giving you. It is me coming back again and saying, cut them away from your life. End it. It is not worth it. This is the sign that perhaps you need. Well, what if no Christian guy ever comes along and then I end up spending the rest of my life single? What then? You know, you may be asking yourself. And the reality of the matter is that, you know, the, the probability of that happening is quite low. But even if it does happen, I believe that you are going to thank yourself for it. Trust me on this one. And so to the unmarried person, it is absolutely clear, don't do it. And if you are already in it, then, you know, do everything you can to get yourself out of it. But what if I am already married to him? What does the Bible have to say in my case? And in that case, you know, we have to first admit that when you are already married, you know, it is infinitely more complicated than it was before you got married. When you are dating, it is at least easier than when you are married. But the Bible does have, you know, something to say to us, to our lives, if we find ourselves in those situations. And the first thing that we need to understand is that as part of the new covenant, we are actually not expected to, to, to divorce. We are not expected to, to end that marriage or that, uh, yeah, that covenant relationship. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11. It says, I give a command to those who are married, it is a direct command from the Lord, not from me. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does, she must not get married again. Or she can go back to her husband, and her husband must not divorce his wife. You know, it's important for us to understand just how important marriage is to God. How, how seriously God takes marriage. And the fact that his desire for marriages is that they may, be, they may last, you know, the, the rest of our lives here on earth. That they may only be broken by the death of one or both of the parties. That is God's desire for marriage. 
And it is important for us to also understand that there are also special cases that may warrant either a person to temporarily uh, separate from, from, their, uh, from their spouse or even to divorce their spouse. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible does bring that balance so that no one is trapped. No one, you know, find themselves in prison, but there is liberty, there is freedom for us to be able to enjoy marriage and to glorify God, and to understand that on the one hand, that God wants marriage to, be, to last the rest of our lives here on earth, to be something that is not temporal, but that is permanent. But at the same time, if you find yourself in those difficult situations, perhaps your life is in danger, that there are those, those rare cases where it is permitted for you to live that person, to live that marriage or, or that spouse. But you also need to understand that you are then uh, saying that you are going to stay single for the rest of your life or you're going to try and, and fix things and work things out so that you may be able to go back to your person. And so, according to God's will and desire, marriage is supposed to be a lifelong co covenant and commitment between two people, a man and a woman, in the presence of God. So, what can you and I do if we find ourselves in this situation? I believe that the scriptures encourage us that this is actually a great opportunity for us to pray for our spouses, to pray for God to work supernaturally in the hearts of our spouses so that they may turn, so that they may also become a believer like we are. But it is also a great opportunity for us to begin to model, to begin to demonstrate our faith and belief in terms of how we live, how we conduct ourselves in that situation, in that marriage. As, Paul, as Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, which basically means even if some don't believe, they may be warned without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so even though this uh, arrangement, this current situation is not ideal, you and I still need to recognize that God is still able to use and to work through this situation to redeem the situation and to redeem the lives of the people within the marriage. That God, you know, is still able to use you in this situation to actually make an eternal difference in the life of your spouse. And so consider that as you make that decision that you need to make in your own situation. And I hope that that gives you something that you can work with. And lastly, I just want us to look at the, the response of the people when they are confronted by their sin. And so basically, Ezra and the leaders, they call a massive special meeting in Jerusalem within three days. And they say every man is supposed to be present there for this special meeting. And he basically presents this and confronts the people with the sin. And so it starts from Ezra chapter 10, verse 9 to 12. And it says, within three days, within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the, in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, saying, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And this basically began a long process when they, when they worked out the practical realities of the commitment that the people had made, saying that they want to live according to God's word. They want to fix things 
They want to make things right. And basically, let me leave you with three things that I see that they did here when they basically uh, tried to fix things between them and God. The first one is that they recognized. They recognized that what they had been doing was against God's word. You know, they didn't try to, to argue it. They didn't try to whistle their way out of it. They didn't even try to justify it, but they agreed. They say, you know what? You are right. What we have been doing is wrong. We are in the wrong. We have committed sin and, you know, we need to do something about it. This is something that they took seriously and they wanted to fix. The second thing was a confession. They confessed with their own mouth that we are in the wrong. We have greatly sinned in this thing. And so that's the second thing they did. And the third and final thing was repentance and restitution. You know, that they took active steps. They didn't just end by confession and saying, I have sinned, you know. But they took active steps to fix things, to make things right. And in their particular case, what that meant is that they had to separate from their wives and some of them from their children as well as they tried to bring themselves back under God's, uh, under God's blessing, under God's word. And so if you and I also find ourselves in a situation where we are living outside of God's will for our lives, these are the three steps that we can also begin to follow. It always begins with recognition. Recognize that what you have been doing is wrong. Recognize that it is outside of God's will for your life and that you need uh, to go back to God and to fix things with God. Second thing is to confess. Appear before God. Go to God in prayer and confess everything that you have done. Confess the sin that you have committed. Confess where you find yourself and maybe the disobedience that uh, you find yourself living in. And then the third thing is to act. Repentance and restitution. Do what is right. Take active steps to correct your ways, to correct your conduct, to turn away from the sin that you have been committing and living and to turn yourself towards God. This can mean anything. You know, it can mean finding a person who can hold you accountable. If there are damages that need to be paid, that is what needs to be done because you want to fix things. You want to make things right. So as we also rise and rebuild, I want to encourage us to make sure that we are rebuilding our lives according to God's word, according to God's pattern. Because whenever we build according to God's pattern and God's design, we build with God's blessing over our lives. And for someone here, maybe your next step, the next step that you need to take is to actually make things right in, in terms of the relationship between you and God. Perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. This might be the moment for you. This is an opportunity for you to be able to do that if you want to place your life in the hands of God. If you want to put things right in your relationship with God, this is the moment that you can do that. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life, and I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. This is what God wants to offer you. He wants to offer you a full and a satisfying life, a life that is full of purpose, meaning, and direction. You know, one of the things that sin does is that it leaves us feeling empty and without meaning and any direction in our lives. God wants to restore that. He wants to give you a life that is full, a life that is satisfying, and a life that has a meaning and a purpose. And for you to be able to, 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 to receive that life, to receive what God has for you, you need to humble yourself as well. You need to call unto God. You need to confess your sins. You need to confess the fact that you have been living your life according to your own means, you know, according to your own plans and purposes. You've been doing whatever you want to do. And this is where it has led you. It has led you to a place where you are confused, when you are living in a place where you are empty in your lives and you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible assures us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whenever you call with faith in your heart, with your whole heart, and you turn to God in desperation and you cry unto Him, He will hear you and you will receive salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much 
Lord God, that even in difficult moments, in moments that are confusing, we can still know, Father God, that you are still able to work behind the scenes to do things that are completely impossible for us to do as we see you do all over and over again in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord God. We pray, Father, in Jesus' mighty name, that you may help us as we begin to rebuild, as we begin to rebuild our lives. Help us to be able to rebuild them according to your pattern, according to your design, because whenever we do that, we can be assured that we will receive your blessing on, on our lives and on the work that we are doing. I pray, Father, for the person who's turning to you for the first time. I pray, Lord God, that indeed you may fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you may make them a new creation, that new person with a new nature. Father, I pray that you may fill their lives with meaning, that you may fill their lives with direction and significance, that they may indeed, Father God, be able to live this full and satisfying life that you said you want for us, that you have come here to give to each and every person who turns to you. I thank you, Father God, for the finished work of the cross, that there's nothing that we still need to do. There's no sin, Father God, that we still need to atone for or pay for. There's no debt that is owed. Father God, the only thing we need to do is to accept what you have already done on our behalf and believe in you and know that we will receive that full and satisfying life, that eternal life that you promised. Father, we thank you. We give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen and amen. Hi, my name is Mundi Kren, and together with my wife, we pastor People's Church. I'm so glad that you chose to join us online today, and I pray that God uses this resource to make you more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that these kinds of resources are never meant to replace the need for you to belong to a local church congregation where you are led and shepherded, a place where you can use your gifts and your resources to make a positive impact on the lives of the people around you. This is only meant to supplement and not substitute them. And lastly, I would like to ask you, if these resources have been of benefit to you, would you kindly consider giving to People's Church? This is so that we can continue to invest in technologies that help us and enable us to increase our reach and spread the message of Jesus Christ even wider and to even more people. For ways to do that, you can go to our website and click on the Giving tab and you'll see ways to be able to give. Now once again, Thank you so much for joining us today. Take care and God bless you. Thank you for joining us. We do hope that you have been encouraged and equipped by today's teaching. Please do remember to reserve your seat online the minute you get the registration link. Have a blessed week.